Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is a returning guest. That's right. We have another returning guest because, I mean, you guys loved her the first time, so we brought her back. We have Jara Johnston, who is a trauma doula. And I've actually never even heard of a trauma doula. And I, and I think most people have never even heard of a doula, but, you know, that's like someone who assists women who are, are giving babies. That's typically how we hear about doulas. But now we also have trauma doulas. And Jira Johnston, as a trauma doula, helps people heal through their traumas, uh, improve their communication, their ability to articulate what is happening for them, their experiences, their thoughts, and their emotions, and also educates people as to their own trauma. And in this episode, I'm so excited because we're going to talk about how our trauma is linked through imperialism, colonialism, capitalism, uh, it down to ourselves. And this is important because a lot of times when we feel overwhelmed, we are all, a lot of us are walking around feeling like whatever we're feeling, experiencing is all our fault. And so we are the only ones who uh, need to navigate our way out of it. And it's so important to recognize the different systems that are in place that may be that may be contributing to our trauma and our experiences of the world. So let's hop into this episode with Jara Johnson. Thank you for being here. No problem. I'm I'm happy to be here. So for myself and for the listeners, can you elaborate more on what a trauma doula is and how you even got into this work? Um, trauma doula. Um, so. I have a lifetime history of trauma for myself. Um, and then many, we've talked about actually, it's the places uh, last time I was here, along the way where I was able to self-reflect and sort of divorce myself from the trauma story and start toward the healing. And as I got further and further along that route, I just found myself connecting more and more and in the helping and guiding capacity and as I started moving into like more of a coaching process uh coaching um arena I realized I didn't really want to life coach I wanted to get down into the, the grit you know what's what's really happening what is not the, the stories we're telling ourselves what's what's happening in the body what's happening in the heart like what's actually underneath all of it but clients are resistant because that's not what they want from life coaching so I actually the term trauma doula that's there's only one other one that I know of um and it looks like her work came after mine there maybe it just sprang up in a couple different spots so I'm not taking credit for it um but for myself it's something I coined and basically it's it's this person who is to guide you through the healing because trauma is healing from trauma is a lot like both dying and being born at the same time so we have both the death doula role and the birth doula role in one. So that's where the trauma doula comes in, is it's just a, an extra person, a support person outside of therapy and other modalities of healing to guide on a more personal and spiritual level. I absolutely love that. The physical getting into our bodies, you're so right. I don't wanna go in there, it's tricky. I think that's why so many of us are like reaching for pills and potions and all these exogenous treatments totally. to cope because there's something scary about feeling our feelings. 
about sitting with ourselves and really allowing the the thoughts from 10, 20 years ago to pop up and explore those spaces. Um, so mm -hmm. I could definitely see some resistance there. And, and I would imagine that a lot of your work is first in building trust with them so that they know it's a safe space to actually emote and cry and shake and all those things. Is that part of it? Absolutely. That's part of my social media process, you know, where I'm out in the world so people can see that they can trust me. I often use myself. I'm not sure how much of my TikTok you're able to see, but I use myself as a guide sometimes. So I'll go through my own processing and break it down for people um, in increments so they can see from the outside what it looks like and then me explaining from the inside what it felt like. Um, but I also run um, an online trauma healing community. So most of the clients I work directly with come at, come to me through the community because we spend a year to three years really knowing each other and they know they can trust me. They've been held by my facilitation within the group. So yeah, that trust is absolutely at the very top uh, for my work with clients. Yeah, what does that look like, that process look like and feel like? And, and I think it's important because I think a lot of times when people go to someone for healing, they think that they will immediately feel relief, that they're going to feel joy, happiness, peace. And I would imagine that that's probably not the first step or the first feeling. Well, it's yes and no. It's part of my job is to help people feel some sense of relief almost immediately, right? Because that's, we don't want to go into something that is just negative, that we perceive as just negative, right? And so, yes, there is a lot of activation and feeling scared in that space. But what I offer to people is, is nonviolence. So a very open-handed way of loving people. I'm not grasping. I'm not pushing my agenda. My job is literally to just be with you and to validate you and your experience and also to offer that little bit of education as to like what's really happening under there. And all of that together, almost, almost every person that I really can get to sit with and, and really be with feels uh, a sense of, they've reflected that they feel a sense of assurance, of feeling safe. Because the things that they're experiencing out in the world on a day-to-day -day that are leading, leading them to my couch or to my office or where we're at is the violence. It's the, the grasping, the forcing, the, the non-consent of our culture. So when they come into my space, the space I've set for us, there's a whole different feeling that immediately is like a little bit relieving and soothing. And so that's a good way to start. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know if what you got like coffees and, and cookie on the table. Just, I would imagine coffee is probably not the best thing to help somebody. Yeah. Calm down. <laughs> That's true. It's like getting their heart rate up and now they're more anxious. There's no point. Maybe some herbal tea or some chamomile mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we talk about the, the layers, the systems in place that are maybe contributing to our experience of our trauma, you know, you and I were talking before the podcast about these different isms. Can, can you uh, speak more to that? To the isms, the imperialism, uh, no, the, it, yeah, absolutely. capitalism. Okay. Absolutely. I was yeah. like, but there's a lot of isms. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. Um, so trauma itself, uh, we talked about this a little bit, but for your listeners, trauma itself is a separation of us from ourselves. 
And that is done in a, in a way that we are disconnected from our social groups. Humans have ape brains and ape brains are built for social connection. That's how our nervous systems are wired is within the social group. So anything that severs that that connection with a social group will eventually create a disconnection from self. So if we look back at the imperialism that was brought injected into our societies with uh, Greek, the Greek and Roman empires, for instance, that imperialism, that force, that uh, all of that push and and all of that, it created a, a separation, especially with the Roman Empire. You can see that like everybody exalts the Roman Empire, but there was a lot of force of ideology and religion. And if that's not where you were, then you had to separate yourself from your own ideals and experiences in order to accept the imperialism, and which was force, forceful a lot of the time. So you didn't have a choice. And then when we moved down to colonialism, where, you know, the British Empire was spreading out and the American Empire, so to speak, eventually started spreading out and colonizing the rest of the world for for the resources. We also brought Christianity and a lot of other power structures into these places that severed those people from themselves, from their culture. And then with capitalism coming in through the Industrial Revolution and the Victorian era ideas that were consumption is a moral obligation. It's a civic duty. Um, all of this has kind of culminated to now we are feeling forced by our societies. We are being forced by our societies to separate from ourselves, from our self-care, from the indicators in our body that we're stressed all the time, just everything that would support our animal self as a human, we're separated from, and then being given this line that we're not worthy unless we are, we're um, being a part of the capitalist machine, essentially, unless we're producing something. Well, and that tracks on a certain level in that you, you, I, when I think about uh, even college, right, there is on one hand, there's something inherently beautiful about this progression. You're going from elementary school to middle school to high school to college. It gives you something to look forward to, to strive towards. And I think as, as, a, as a people, we all want to feel like we're moving or progressing towards something. And so that's mm-hmm. a, a structure in place. Uh, but the trade-off of that is there's so many parents who are now, um, you know, reminding their kids like, hey, you're not going to get into college if you don't do that. We're doing it so you can get into college. And, you know, you're 10, 11 years old. Just you just want to play and hang out with your friends and your and your parents already have like the college uh, logos on the wall. And they got you in a sweatshirt and a and a, yep. and a cap. And you're like, yep. do, do you even want me around? Because all the messages you're sending me is that you want me out the house and, and into this place that I don't even know, like. Is there mm-hmm. something, you know, uh, so we get these subconscious messages of where you are is not where you want to be. You want to be in this place five years from now or 10 years from now, you know, and then once you get into college, it's like, all right, well, everything you do in a college is so that you can get this job. And then when you get that job is like, you better get this job so that you can get this house and then you get that house and it becomes a never ending yeah. cycle of wanting, wanting, wanting something bigger, better. And then I think people feel overwhelmed. And then where is the space 
for you to connect with yourself. Right. And you're feeding the capital, right? Every step you've talked about is about how do you as a cog in capitalism um, produce for capitalism? And, and remember, like the majority of wealth in our first world nations is at the one top 1%. So the majority of us are working for the power structure, not for ourselves or our futures, even though it's being repackaged as it's for our well-being. When we look at societies in general, it, you know, you brought up the animal kingdom early on. Aren't structures inherent in most groups, right? Where like, if you got 10 people in a room, at some point, I would imagine someone pipes up and starts taking control of the other nine people or becomes the leader or the voice for those nine people. So mm -hmm. I think it's it, on one end, we have imperialism, colonialism, capitalism, and these things that are in place and on some levels can separate us from ourselves. On the other hand, we naturally fall into these striations and levels of structure of like, all right, you take the lead or, you know, I'll follow or, you know, we'll break off into this group. What's the middle ground there? Because it seems like even if we brought all these structures down, we would naturally be like, all right, so who's in charge now? Like, that's just our mm -hmm. natural inclination to want somebody to guide us. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the one of the answers to this question is easily seen if we look at our eight counterparts right? Because we're not alone. We're not the only eight brains on the planet. So we look at our eight counterparts and we see that, yes, there is hierarchical structure, uh, not as significant as we see in human groups. Uh, so they're often like, it shifts quite a bit and it's, it's groups rather than individuals. But also when you look at these groups of apes, none of the actions of the leaders are undermining the health of the group. The leader is a leader because it, it that leader is making the group better, healthier. You know, it's it their children are going to survive longer, all of that. Humans have stopped doing that. They're undercutting what 90 to 99% of the population of the world for the betterment of that leadership at 1%. And that's the difference between where we are human and our human constructs and where we've you know divorced from the animal kingdom. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could see that for sure. Because when you look at um, the alpha male, yes, he's reproducing, but he's reproducing because the, the the tribe or group—I don't know what you call a band of gorillas or apes—but they need they need the numbers. They need the numbers for hunting. They need it for building and to protect themselves from other tribes. So there's a there's a numbers thing that they have to maintain. And also, um, you know, when I look at the evolution of the mate selection. It's like you are, people are looking to mate with the strongest because they're expecting that the offspring will survive. So it's about mm -hmm. mating with the, who you think is the strongest or the healthiest looking because you want the offspring to survive. Because as we know, in human history, people were having like 10 kids and only right. like two would survive. Right, 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 yeah. So, Absolutely. So when we, you know, with these things in place, it I think we can admit that th these are going to be structures that 
will just be there because of human nature. Human nature is loving, caring, and compassionate, but also can be destructive, undermining, and betraying, right? We're all these complex things. So when, so, so when someone is coming in with uh, a trauma, how do they, how do they heal? How do they navigate through a world where these things are quote unquote natural are there? Mm, okay. Well, trauma itself is a, is a, it's a wound. So if, if somebody's carrying trauma in their nervous system and, and this is, this is supported by the father's, of the research and trauma. So that's Bessel van der Kolk and Peter Levine, both doctors at head of trauma research for the last 40 to 50 years. Um, what we see is that trauma is, is a wound. And so, and it lives in our nervous system, which means it becomes highly dysregulating to our nervous systems, right? So a, tra a trauma traumatized person is already at a disadvantage when they approach society. Right when they reapproach, because they already approached and been denied. Right, that's how that trauma was formed. But now they're reapproaching society with a lot of fear and just innate nervous system issues. So, our traumatizing society, whether it's a capitalism that you're looking at or any other ism, that's not going to change overnight. Right, there's not going to be this like beautifully consensual nonviolent society that crops up just because we see that we need it. Um, but a traumatized person has to find a some part of the social group in order to heal the social wound. Because without healing the social wound, that nervous system activation is going to continue. So we have to, my work means that I go into the place, I work with the person to get into the place where the pain exists. That's typically several places, but we'll go into like that, that deep pain place and then give love, acceptance reality of this isn't your fault. There's a lot of other factors here that you have not been conditioned to see. So there's also a healthy dose of reality. And when a traumatized person is able to get these things on a fairly consistent basis, as well as cultivating, you know, social and emotional skills, we see a repairing of the actual nervous system because it takes it down from that alarm bell. Oh my gosh, there's danger, there's pain. And it slowly brings it down to a place where we're able to use our brains the, the way that they were meant to function, meaning that the trauma wound is healing and is going toward being healed. Well, this tracks. And I love that you mentioned reality, right? You said, we're going to find the trauma and then we're going to inject love, acceptance and reality. And I think that reality part is really what's missing from so many experiences because we have these romanticized expectations of what um, giving birth is going to feel like or what going off to college is going to be or what being getting married is uh, you know, going to feel like and what that experience is going to be. And then when you get into it, you're like, whoa, this is not what I saw on Netflix or Absolutely. YouTube or read in the magazines. And so to get that reality check of here's what might be contributing, I, I, I you know, I give you an example. I have sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I kind of ignored it because sleep apnea is one of those things that I had attributed to being overweight. So I was like, OK, I just got to lose weight. That's, you know, that's 
what I've read. So then I lose weight mm-hmm. and I still have sleep apnea and I'm still snoring. Absolutely. And then I do a little research. I get the the reality that you you discussed and I discover that because we've been eating softer foods, you know, everything's processed or soft now. Everybody's drinking a smoothie or a green drink. Mm-hmm. Um, our jaw lines have become more narrow. And because our jaw lines have become more narrow, there's no room for our teeth. That's why like a lot of people have like teeth crammed in there. They got like extra, extra like fangs or, or, you know, they, when I was a kid, we call them snaggle twos. I mean, surely you can't use that term anymore, but, um, <laughs> but what's interesting is even though our jaws have become more narrow, the number of teeth that come in are the same number of teeth. So they're getting crammed in there and mm-hmm. our tongue has not become smaller. Our tongue has remained the same. So our, when we fall asleep, our tongue has nowhere to go. There's not enough room in the mouth and it falls back in the throat. So this is partly attributed to, um, you know, I could say capitalism, but a part of it is just the mass production, trying to feed 6 billion people on a planet and make sure, making sure no one starves. The, the byproduct of that is now we have access to these softer foods when back in the day, you know, we were like pulling meat off a bone and, and chewing something for uh, 10 days. Um, and so that gave me an understanding as to my sleep apnea of like, oh, this is not all of my fault. There is something yeah. at play in how society is being run that's contributing to it. And I would imagine the same with depression, anxiety. I was just talking to a friend yesterday and she's like, I want to go back to communal living. And this is a woman who's married, two children, two dogs, two cats. And now the kids are off to college. The husband works all the time. And she's like, there's nobody around. Like she's in the suburbs and, you know, everybody's making money to have a great 401k, but nobody has any friends. There's no one to hang out with because they live so far. Yeah, absolutely. No, I absolutely see that for sure. Um, it's, it's these constructed realities. You know, I think it's helpful for us to see that as humans, we are so intelligent and intelligence is the marker of a human being, but with that intelligence comes storytelling and narrative. And that's all a construct. Those are all human constructs. And we, we take it so for granted because we've been doing it for so long that these constructs, we we start to believe that the constructs are the base reality but they're not. They're a reality set on top of shared reality by all of the planet, not just human beings. Um, And I think getting up under, and that's what I said in this video that you're referring to about uh, colonialism and capitalism being an issue with um, suicide, is um, that, wow, I just lost my track of thought. I have ADHD, so sometimes the train just takes off. It away from the station. I'm so sorry about that. Um, no, take your time. You, Cause we're talking about, you know, uh, capitalism and imperialism and this idea of people constructed, reality. re- constructed realities. And so we, we are probably building these ideas of what a life should look like yes. and not yeah. understanding that, yes, that's great to feed the system, but it's probably removing you further and further from yourself on some level. Absolutely. We, we just get so, the system relies on us being very attached to the narrative that's comfortable. 
just as a mammal, we are very uncomfortable with things we don't understand or are unknown. So this, this projected narrative of our societies is very comforting. And that comfort is often enough to turn us against ourselves and to turn our minds against ourselves, which then eventually leads to this place where people have ideations of not being here because it's too painful. So talk to me more about that. You said that the, the links, uh, when we look at the system of capitalism, colonialism, and its links to suicide, go a little deeper into that. Break that down for me. Okay. Well, I actually um, kind of, ahead of time, I kind of went into like, what is this process that somebody with suicidal ideation might be going through? Um, and so the initial is, I feel unworthy and I'm in pain, right? So I, because the capitalist um, ideology is you are you are equal to the worth of your output, right? So if something is falling short of that, I feel unworthy, I'm in pain in some way, right? So that person is then looking to their social group. That might be family, that might be school, that might be friend group, uh, town, community in some way, right? So they they look to their social group of what what is this? What why am I in pain? Can you help me? And what's this that I'm fearful of? You know, and trying to remediate those feelings. Um, but they look around and everyone else's seems to be acclimating okay to the reality that is harming them, right? So wait, everybody else is okay. Additionally, much of what we hear as a response to suicidal ideation is, is problematic because it invalidates and shames the person for the suicidal ideation, right? So nobody else is having this issue. Why don't, why can't you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps? You know, these things that we say to people when they're in this place actively concrete their idea that, wait, this problem I'm experiencing is my fault because nobody else is experiencing the same thing or I'm getting actively shamed or invalidated for the way that I'm feeling. And so, oh, my social group says things are supposed to be okay. So this is not the problem out here. I'm the problem. And then that, that is a deepening spiral that leads to, if I'm the problem, my entire life is creating the pain and the fear that I'm experiencing, then, then I need to leave, right? I can't get out of it because I'm creating it, so I might as well exit. It sounds like what you're helping your clients do is to zoom out of themselves and see the bigger picture right, in terms of how we're connected to society. In the book, Behave by Robert, Dr. Robert Sapolsky, he's a, a professor, I think at Stanford or Harvard or one of those schools. And he says, if you wanna understand someone's behavior, there are five levels we need to look at. We need to look at their genetics, their hormones, uh, their, uh, the, the chemicals in their body, but also their experiences and evolution. And I think that a lot of us are not aware of how our experiences of life impact our mental health and how we show up. I have a friend who his mom was living in, I think it was like Costa Rica or Brazil, and she was 80, 85, and he moved to L.A. And so he goes, Mom, you know, you're getting old. You need to move up here so I can keep an eye on you. And she's like, no, no, you know, I'm good because I can get up. I'm going to the farmer's market. I can still take care of myself. He's like, yeah, but you're getting old. Let me keep on. So finally she gives in and moves up to LA and she dies like within a year. Immediately she's like, she has all these health issues, diabetes. She's getting big. You know, she's just sitting on a couch. 
because there was no community, one, for her, two, no exercise. She didn't have the farmer's market that she could walk to every day. And then three, she was eating processed foods because now she's not going to the farmer's market. She's not cooking for herself. So now she's eating, you know, whatever ice cream or whatever is in the fridge. And all these things weren't taken into account. He was just like, you're getting old. Let me take care of you. And, mm-hmm. and he probably felt that duty as a son due to the messaging, not realizing that there's that, that more things feed us than just food and money. He was like, well, I'm making money. I can take care of you financially. He wasn't thinking about her being taken care of socially, emotionally, and spiritually. Well, and I mean, that just shows the capitalistic programming, right? She's old and therefore she cannot put into the system of capitalism and then therefore must be provided for. But that is what you were exactly what you're saying is that money is the resource that makes everything happen. But that's just a capitalistic idea. There's a there's many, many, many other resources like you were saying. And and I just want to clarify that it's it's not just when you talk about life experience being to be taken in, that's absolutely true. But I think beyond further into that idea is that trauma and these these uh these mental wounds mental emotional wounds that are inflicted on people who want to commit suicide they're not just mental they're physical it is a physical problem trauma is a physical wound to the brain and the nervous system of these bodies this isn't a mind over a matter or not that i I believe that you think that, but just there's this, this, this common misconception that trauma or mental health, you just, it's about, it's about, you know, cognitive ability, but like, it is about cognitive ability. Like our brains are literally changed after trauma comes into our, our systems. So it's, it's a physical problem as well as a mental and emotional problem. So if, if someone is experiencing you know, suicidal ideations right now. I, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, <laughs> I was just dropping some books off today at, uh, at the Goodwill. I, I love the Goodwill, uh, they're like the Goodwill bookstore anyway. And the, the lady was like, oh, you're in here all the time buying our books. I was like, yeah, for the first time I'm returning, you know, I'm, uh, I'm giving some away. And she was like, why do you have all these books? I was like, well, I have a podcast that, you know, I, I read a lot for, and it's a suicide prevention. And she goes, yeah, my friend just sent me a picture of her harming herself. And, you know, I didn't, you know, know how to respond to the, the photo. So we had a conversation about it. And my, I guess so my question is, when people are self-harming themselves, and mm-hmm. we talked about how the pain is in the body, mm-hmm. how do we... How do we move that pain out of the, or, or how, for one, how do we connect to that pain in the body? And then how mm-hmm. do we sit with it and how do we experience it in a way that is not harming ourselves, but healing? So that's, it's so interesting because I think it shows that this work is, is, that there's an underlying truth because I, I think you circled just right back to something that I wanted to clarify, which is that I do help my clients zoom out but I help them zoom in first. They have to zoom in first. They have to feel the pain. They have to recognize the pain. Um, and that pain is so incredibly overwhelming, especially for someone who has experienced uh, repeated traumas. Uh, most of us have. <laughs> um, 
that pain is is overwhelming on a physical level. And that's where doulas, I think, are such a pivotal piece of the puzzle because your doctor or your um, therapist, you know, their jobs are very particular. There's a very specific way they need to do their jobs and it's specific things they're doing. They're not just there to just like let you cry and and let the pain out and, and be like, yeah, I'm here. I'm with you. And and the problem is like when this uh, this woman at the Goodwill store with her friend, people's reaction when somebody's reaching out, because that's that's her friend saying, help, like I'm I'm in pain. And our first reaction is stop, stop that. That freaks me out that I don't know what to do. So you need to stop. But that shaming and that that forceful response, it forces people back into themselves. They're trying to connect. So when someone is self-harming or when somebody is unfortunately in suicidal ideation, the one of the worst things that we can do is let our fear response to their circumstance be levied against them as shame. We have to join them. We have to get in the boat with them because that's the thing that didn't happen that led to this place. What would that have looked like for my friend to get in the boat with her? What would that have looked like? Well, I mean, it is definitely really specific per person, which is why like specialized people to help like recognize these situations is really helpful, like doulas and peer support specialists and things like that. But let's just put a general scope on it. If I'm receiving a message from somebody I care about that is self-harming, the very, very first thing I'm going to do is let them know that they're safe with me, that they are not responsible for my responses to their, their circumstances. You know, that so I take my emotional response and I put it over here for me to deal with on my own because that's not their responsibility. And then I'm here with them. That might mean eye contact. That might mean carving out space to be with that person. Um, You know, giving them love and presence without trying to coerce or force them to do anything at all. Um, Because any kind of force or coercion or judgment is likely to go the opposite direction that we want it to. So getting in the boat, letting them know that they're safe, letting them know that, you know, they can share whatever they want to share. And I'm, yes. I'm here for you. And that also, I love that part where you mentioned that they're not responsible for your response, right? They're not, they don't have to make sure that you're okay with the with how they're feeling and their journey in it because i could imagine you know people who uh, are thinking about ending their lives they have such an overwhelming responsibility for how other people feel and that can they be exhausting safe. i see you yes. nodding your head right there absolutely yes 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 this is one of the biggest issues and actually the video that you watched uh, that that spurred uh, our conversation today was about a friend of mine who was express, expressing suicidal ideation thoughts on facebook and the reason i made that video is because i had such a, a large reaction to the way that people responded to him because they told him uh you know how dare you leave other people here behind in pain uh, you know, you're worth so much more than that. Why can't you just see that? It's so much judgment and shame levied at the person who's already hanging on by a thread. Um, and so while we think we're trying to save them, we're hacking at the one thread that is tying them to the world that we live in. You know, there's so much we, we want to help, but I think that there's also, uh, needing to respect that 
people have their own bodily autonomy and experience, and it is not our job or our right to levy our ideas against them because we have not lived their lives and we are not in the pain that they are currently in. Yeah, I mean, I do, I was just noticing you even using the words worth and value. Like, you know, those are very financial ideas that we're we're t- attributing to ourselves, right? Like, you know, I don't feel valued. I I, I want to feel worthy. Like, you know, it's like that net worth and and all those different things, and and that's a number which goes up and down, um, you know, depending on circumstances. So, you know, we're connecting. We have the person feeling safe. Um, how else are we helping people to zoom in? What else would that look like uh, on a practical level? Well, so here's here's where it comes in. There, there's a process here. So the zooming in is really important. The zooming in is you're allowed to feel your feelings. I'm going to be here so that you're safe. Um, there's no judgment. Like you're okay because you're here with me and I'm going to make sure it's okay. That's the ape brain response that we needed at the, at the time that the traumatic experience came up. Right. Um, but then we can create a situation where people collapse because they have such a deep desire, such a, such a desperation to get more and more of that validation and that love and that support, which is good. That's, that's a natural response. But unfortunately, because they've not gotten it up to that point, there can be like like a never ending hunger and a never ending reach for more and more and more. So in my work as a trauma doula, I lead people in, zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. And then the moment I feel like, okay, we're not really going any further here. We're not going, we're not getting better. Then I'm like, okay, so let's start to zoom out now. Because there's no more we can do in that zoomed in space. We have felt it. We're feeling it. We may need to come back to it time and time again to remind ourselves of where we are. But then we're not going to stay there. And I think that's where people get really caught up is they might do the loving, hanging out, like able to support in a certain sense. But then they're like, uh, what do I do from here? Because it's not getting better. And I think that that's where this, these specialized roles are really helpful because as a trauma doula, as a peer support specialist, you can see and sense through experience, okay, we're just spinning. So let's get up and out of it and look at the reality checking. What is the reality of your life? Like the actual reality, not the narrative reality. And, you know, what, what can a future look like? What, um, you know, just like asking some questions, being curious about not just their internal world, but then expanding out to their external world and their social connections and their connection with nature, you know, zooming out, not letting them spin in the zoomed in place. Wow. There's so many things I, I love that you said I want to unpack. But one thing, uh, your the sound, I think because of your Bluetooth, uh, it's creating like a, a, a distancing. So any listeners out there, it's not your sound system. It's the uh, it's fine. We can still hear you as you're speaking, but there are just times where you're uh, louder than others. Um, so okay. I just want the listeners to know it's, it's not their their headset. Uh, and so part of what you were talking about with the zooming in, I love that you said, let's zoom in up to a point where I feel like, all right, we're not really getting better. Now we're just kind of, you know, spinning our wheels. And I've noticed that in myself where 
I go from one self-help book to the next. And I'm just like, in this loop of reading self-help books, I'm not really getting any better, but I, I don't want to, but I just, I'm addicted to the, the information and the seeking of it instead of actually putting in the work. And so I've seen those cycles. And then uh, when you talked about um, zooming out and doing the reality check, you know, that's such a beautiful thing because I, for myself, when I'm in that well, in that hole, I'm catastrophizing, I'm exaggerating, I am demonizing or lionizing or idolizing. I'm all the zings. We were talking about the isms earlier, but I, I, <laughs> I'm all the ings. That's yeah. th Those things get me in trouble. I'm black and whiting, all those different things. And what I, what, what it pains me to do is to actually sit down and look objectively at the, the, the stats. To, to, to sit down and even look at how much money I have in my bank account. I hate doing it. Mm -hmm, I don't, I don't, I don't want to look at <laughs> how much is in my bank account. I don't want to look at how much I'm spending. I don't want to look at the reality of, of my behaviors. I don't want to look at the reality of, you know, uh, how much time I'm spending on Netflix or staying up late or what I'm eating. I don't want to keep a food journal. I don't want that <laughs> reality. Or, or what? Are you serious? Yeah. No, thank you. I'm I'm trying to numb out and 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 zone out. I'm not trying to zoom in and zoom out and really ca capture a 365 uh, degree. So I imagine this is why it's so important to have a trauma doula or a therapist or a coach because they are going to provide that space for us to feel like we're not alone in our mental health journey. I think that's the other part is like back in our tribal days, we, we would be, you know, there would be grandpa and grandma and, and tribal exactly. elders and all yeah. these people around us who would guide yeah. us and there'd be rituals and routines. And, yeah. and now we have to create, we have to create a whole culture by ourselves. It's like a culture exactly. of one. Yes. I see you lighting up. Say more. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. This is, I mean, this is the root of what I'm saying around imperialism, colonialism, and capitalism. This is the root, is that when we were before all of these things, when we were just tribes of people or groups of people, yes, all of those things existed. And they were such a part of who we are as individuals, as, as a part of the group. And this through this hyper-individualization, through all these, these systems so that we can become a cog in that machine, we have lost our internal identity, our cultural identity, we have no natural ways to mitigate the trauma that we experience at the hands of these systems that are now our, our powers, we have like powers above us. Um, so yes, yeah, absolutely. That reality that you just said is something that is in my mind all the time as I do this work, all the time. How do you, on a daily basis, connect with yourself? Um, well, I, I don't think your listeners are going to like this answer very much because um, Ooh, I like I that response already. <laughs> <laughs> I rebuilt my entire life. Mm. The last time you talked to me, I was just, I was just starting this process. That was about three years ago during basically beginning of the pandemic. And, um, I rebuilt my whole life to center my well-being, 
is what happens. And so, you know, I wake up and I take the first three hours of my day to myself. I make my cup of coffee or my cup of tea. I'll sit, I'll read, light my incense, like set myself up in my, in my space so that I'm centered in myself before I move out into the world and do anything. I don't schedule things before 10 a.m. because that's my time. Now, could I do that with a nine to five? Yeah, absolutely not. Um, could I do that if I had made different decisions in my life that would have followed this very capitalistic uh, journey? No. And that's the thing is I had to sacrifice approval from the majority of society. I had to sacrifice so many conveniences in my life in order to honor the fact that I want to center myself in my healing in my life. And I want to do that for myself, but I also want to do that because so many more people need, want it and need it and deserve it. They deserve it. Are there any last words that you want to share that you, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you think would be of value to the listeners? Absolutely. There's, there's one more thing that I think that is helpful just based on where we were going with the conversation, which is that one of my great teachers is, is uh, Baba Ramdas. Um, and I'm sure that you've, you've heard of him. Uh, he recently died. And uh, one of the things that he says in his lectures is one of the best things that you can do for the health of your heart is to try to hold more than one reality at a time. And what trauma does is it collapses our reality to be myopic. We only have one. And that's really the problem with the trauma wound is we are not capable of holding more than just our trauma reality um, while we're in the wound and not healing. And so when we talk about zooming in and zooming out, what we're doing is we're putting one foot in an internal reality and one foot in an external reality. And we're going back and forth. We're exercising this muscle to tolerate more than one reality at a time. And I believe that that exercise is one of the best things that we can do to build resilience to trauma. And then therefore, maybe in the end, save our own lives. I, you know what? I love that. In physics, they talk about how everything is true. I like both. I think it's like both things are true or both sides are true. Um, mm -hmm. And you're right, because even that's what addiction is. Addiction makes us feel like it is the only solution to our problem. It is the, our only way to find pleasure. It is the only way to get energy. It's our only way for whatever we want. All you got to do is come to this little thing and uh, I got you, you know, whether it's a drink or w w whatever it is. So I, I appreciate you highlighting that. Uh, where can people find you to work with you? Uh, so my website is magic of authenticity. That's all one word.com. Um, and all the information that you would need to work with me as a client to become a part of my community, or even get just some of my free information will be found on the website. And then also, as you saw, I'm on TikTok at traumadula.jira. Beautiful. And then penultimate question, always imagine there's someone listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Try first, before killing yourself, try the exercise of imagining if there's something bigger than yourself that might be causing the pain you're experiencing. And what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? I'm going to go see my child today. 
Oh, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling to get help. Call the 988 or any of the other 800 numbers. If you can chat, talk, text. If you want one-on-one coaching, go to yours. Go to thrivewithleo.com for coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Jared. Thank you, Leo.